The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Our sermon text this morning comes from John chapter 21, the first 14 verses, but let's turn first to John chapter 7 and read verse 32 and then 37 to the end of the chapter. John chapter 7, verse 32, and skip down to verse 37 to 52. John 7, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words... Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And now turning to the end of the gospel, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. 
That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with some fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we have all gathered and we are of one mind. As is true of all the Church of Christ as she gathers around the earth this day. And it is to hear the voice of our Master. We have not come to hear the wisdom of men. We have not come to hear the ramblings of someone who is thoughtful. We have come to hear from the true and the living God who speaks to us from the living and active word of God. And as was true of the origin of our faith, so it is true of its sustenance and its nourishment. It is tied to the word of God, inseparably linked to the word of God. And so we come hungry and thirsty to eat and drink of the Lord and to be nourished by you and through the ministry of your spirit. And this has already been prayed. We ask that you would speak to your people this morning. And again, Father, that we would meet the greatness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and this great condescension of the living God to sinners such as ourselves and to bask again in who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know how many of you uh, consider yourselves fans of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm one of them. If you are too, I'm glad to meet you. I'm sure we'll talk after worship service. But anyway, um, those are great books. And as you know, they're made into movies. And those that consider themselves serious Tolkien fans, also called Tolkien nerds, people that take Tolkien too far perhaps, were somewhat critical of those, of those movies, and in part because of the fact that uh, Peter Jackson, who was the director, uh, fooled around a little bit with the books, uh, things that he inserted, things he, he took out, and among them, perhaps the most egregious uh, thing he took out was the scouring of the Shire, something that comes towards the very end of the third volume. For Tolkien, I think it's very important, not just from a literary standpoint, but I think he's making a theological standpoint, but Mr. Jackson, in all of his wisdom, uh, using it in a very, very sarcastic way, uh, decided not to include it. And somebody asked him, why did you not include the scouring of the Shire in your movies? 
And he said it struck him as anticlimactic. Now, I have definite opinions about that, but I'm not going to share them now because I'm in a pulpit. Those would not be wholesome thoughts to share, but we can talk afterwards. They struck him as anticlimactic. Now, it's possible that somebody reading the gospel that John comes to the end of this gospel, to chapter 20, we've already read of the fact that Christ has sacrificed himself upon the cross. We've read already that he is raised from the dead. And as you come to the end of chapter 20, these last two verses, 30 and 31, it sort of appears as if John is winding up the gospel like he's, he's done. And then we come to this, this episode that I just read of Jesus meeting his disciples in the Sea of Galilee and they're fishing. And it's possible somebody could read this and say, well, this seems somewhat anticlimactic. After all the signs that Jesus has done, after his death and his resurrection, why would we get this story here? It's included for very important reasons, and we don't know all of them. But I hope we'll discover one this morning by the Sea of Galilee. So we begin here, and you notice what Peter says, I'm going fishing, and the other six say, we'll go with you. And some of you might say, how can you ever blame a man who wants to go fishing? Well, there's a little bit more to it than that. But we're told here, in very brief words, they went into a boat, into the lake, they fished all night, and they caught nothing. Now, fishermen know exactly how this works. You go to the same spot, use the same bait, go at the same time, and completely different results. Yesterday, you got your limit. Today, you're completely skunked. This happens even to professional fishermen, as was true with these men. But there's something else going on as well. But they're fishing here by the sea, and they they caught nothing. Perhaps we could pause and ask a question. Why are they at the Sea of Galilee to begin with? And this is the same sea. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee, as we're told in chapter 6, verse 1. Different words, same sea. And why are they fishing? And perhaps on a superficial level, we could say, well, they're men of Galilee. That's what they're called in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. This is where they're from. They're at home. And furthermore, four of these are at home fishing. That Andrew and Philip and James and John are professional fishermen. This is what they've always done, perhaps for generations in their families. And perhaps this is why they're here. Jesus had been providing for them the last three years, literally everything they needed, revenue, uh, food to be healed. He provided everything. But Jesus is not here, and they need to feed uh, their families. They need to eat. And so perhaps that's why they're here, somebody could say. But they did not come to Galilee to fish. That was not their intention. They came here because they were told to come here. And you're saying, well, where were they told that? In the garden, in Matthew 26, 32, Jesus said, all of you are going to fall away, as he speaks to his disciples. All of you are going to fall away. But after I'm crucified, I will be raised, and then I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So he told them there in the garden. After he was raised from the dead, in Matthew 28, verse 7, there we read how the angels met the Marys, the two Marys who came to the tomb, and the tomb is empty, and they greet uh, these women, and they say, go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. But most poignantly, in verse 10 in Matthew 28, that the, the women see Jesus himself, who speaks to them directly and says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
That's why they're here. They were told to come here. This is where they're going to meet Jesus after he has been raised. So what is happening here is Jesus is setting up a situation. We read in verse 1 that after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, Galilee, and he has revealed himself in this way. This is a particular way in which Christ wanted to reveal himself to these particular disciples. He wants to do it this way, and he's setting up the situation. He's contriving the situation, we could say. Now, he's done this before. He did this in chapter 6 with his disciples. They went out into a boat, into the sea, ahead of him. And uh, things got a little rough there. It became dark, and, and the sea began to be a little bit choppy. The winds came up, and Jesus is not with them. And Jesus did this to reveal himself to his disciples. He's making the situation so that he can reveal himself in order to do what? To encourage their faith. Their faith in him and who he is and what he can do. And sure enough, just as the sea was getting more and more rough, Jesus walks on the water to the disciples And he calms the sea. Jesus was the one who allowed the winds to blow. Jesus, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the world, is the one who allowed those waves to climb. He's the one who ordered that darkness to enshroud his disciples so he could be the one to come and to show them who he is, to show them again who he is, so he could prove to them that there is no wave too high, there's no sea too wide to separate him from his disciples. Nothing could possibly stand in the way from him finding his disciples and coming to their rescue and helping them. The darkness can't hide them. The sea is not going to claim them. This is Christ, sovereign one. And so just like in John 6, here again, he is revealing himself in this special, unique way that's suited to his disciples, to to these fishermen. To assure them, to assure their faith, who he is and what he can do. Let's get back to the fishing. So we read here, it's the break of day. It's hard to make out what's going on. And Jesus appears on the shore and the disciples don't know that it's Jesus. And he cries out, he says, lads, have have you caught anything? Do you have any fish? And this is the friendly banter that's always taking place when you're fishing. You meet some other guys, say, what are you using? What are they biting? Where are you trying to fish? This sort of thing. All kinds of advice going back and forth. It's, it's friendly stuff. And it's exactly the sort of thing we would expect to find. Have you caught anything? And they say, no. And he says, well, try the starboard side and you'll catch some fish there. Well, they have nothing to lose. And so they cast the nets out again, and what happens? That so many fish come flooding into the nets, they can't even bring the nets into the boats. And immediately, the significance of the event hits John and Peter. And as is typical, John is the first to see, and Peter is the first to act. John says, it is the Lord. And before he even finishes the sentence, Peter is jumping into the water, and he's swimming to the shore. And you have to ask yourself, why would Peter do this? Is he just an insensitive fisherman to leave all the hard work to his brothers to bring in the nets? Is that what is taking place? When Matthew, the tax collector, was called by Jesus, he left behind all of his money as receipts, just left it to follow Jesus. In John 4, when Christ was speaking to the Samaritan woman, When it dawns upon her who she's speaking to, Scripture says she left her water jar there 
and ran to the town to, to, to speak to the people of who she was speaking to. And just like in those situations, when each of these individuals, they see the significance of who it is, of Jesus, in their excitement, they forget everything else. They leave it all behind. This is possibly the last time that, that Peter ever fished in his life. Each of them just forgets everything else and goes to him or follows him. But I think the real question is, does this sound familiar? Does this sound like another event between Peter and our master? And it does. It reminds us of Luke, Luke 5. The first time that our Savior met Peter, he's, he's speaking there by the seashore, and the crowd is pressing him and pressing him. So he gets into a boat and begins to talk to the people, and he's finished, and he turns, and, and there is Peter. He says, well, let's go out into the deep, and let's catch some fish. And the same as what happens in this story, Peter says, well, we fished all night and we caught nothing, but since you said so, I'll do so. And they went out, and what happens? They gather so many fish, it says the nets began to break, and they filled two boats. And Peter begins to absorb what is happening here, and he goes to his knees, and he says, you should leave me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And I think it's the same lesson in one sense, that Christ is revealing his identity. This is the one who can, who can gather uh, the fish of the seas, or this is the one who can gather the souls of men. This is one who is sovereign. He's simply reminding Peter of this again in this living parable of who he is. We've seen this before, and we're seeing it all over again, of this one who can, who can do these things. And so now we turn to, to breakfast on the shore. Jesus invites the disciples to breakfast, and the disciples, they come, and, and as they come to the shore, they see that there's fish cooking over a charcoal fire, and there's some bread. And it reminds me of, of a, a time when um, my family was visiting with one of my sister-in-laws who has a house up in the Poconos. This is northeast Pennsylvania. They have this nice little pond behind their house. We went out fishing very early in the morning, and we did really well, and I was excited because we came back with some perch, and I'd always heard perch tasted really good. And I kind of went through the cupboards of my sister-in-law's house, and I found some um, Italian seasoned breadcrumbs. I found some limes, some bacon drippings. I knew we were set. And uh, my other sister-in-law came in the kitchen, and she said, who ever heard of having fish for breakfast? And I couldn't help myself, and I said, Jesus? It just seemed like the mature and godly thing to say at the time. <laughs> Jesus says, bring some of the fish you just caught. Peter drags the net ashore, 153 large fish. Again, this is just like fishermen. Always about counting, measuring the fish. How many did we catch? All the excitement of it. But it reminds us too when it says here that the nets are not torn, that there's so many. It reminds us of that earlier story where the nets began to tear. Another allusion to, to Luke 5. We have all these echoes of what Christ did before on this, on this sea. And then these wonderful words, these just very simple, homely words, come and have breakfast. Christ is the host doing what he had done so many times before, serving these men, giving them bread and fish. But here's the most striking thing. 
It's the first time we encounter this in this gospel. It says here, nobody is asking him, who is this? Nobody is asking, who are you? Nobody's asking that question. But that was the question before. When Jesus calmed the sea, that was the question, who is this? Who speaks to the wind and calms the sea? That was the question before Jesus put to them, who is it that people are saying I am? Who do you say that I am? That's not the question. Nobody needs to ask that question. Nobody's even talking and saying, who are you? Everybody's thinking the same thing. It's the Lord. Those questions have all been answered. He's risen from the grave. They just saw what he did in gathering the fish. There's no reason to ask that question, who are you? Instead, we have this intimate picture that they are sitting here eating and drinking in this familiar place with the master, and nobody is saying a word. This is Jesus, their friend, their mentor. But this is Christ. This is the risen Lord. This is the one who is shown and proven his sovereignty over the grave and now over the sea. And the passage concludes in this quiet way. This is how Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he rose from the dead. This is just as Jesus intended to do, to reveal himself to his disciples in this specific way, to give proof to them that this is Jesus, but this is the eternal Son of God who has risen from the grave. Now, one of the reasons this is important is because of what we read in John chapter 7. Galilee is a small, rural, insignificant place. It's backwoods, as it were. That's what we would say today. But when we went to John 7, what we read there was that the Pharisees had, Pharisees had nothing but contempt for Galilee. They said, no prophet, no prophet comes from Galilee. There's no way that God could raise up someone so important from a place so insignificant as Galilee. Even Nathaniel, at the very beginning of this gospel, says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is in Galilee. So that's the question. Can a prophet arise from Galilee? And we ask ourselves, what did Jesus do in Galilee? What did the disciples see Jesus do in Galilee? Well, it's pretty significant. First of all, Nazareth of Galilee, this is the home of Jesus, is where he's from. But Galilee is where he called his very first disciples, Andrew and, and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. Galilee is where Jesus performed his very first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when he turned the water into wine. It's where he performed his second sign when Jesus healed the official's dying son. Galilee is where he, he healed the crippled man from Bethsaida and where he healed the leper and the man with the shriveled hand and the centurion's servant. This is the Sea of Galilee where Jesus paid the temple tax by having Peter go and, and get a fish and finding a, a coin inside the fish. And of course, this is a place where Jesus walked on the water. All of this happened in Galilee. His principal ministry took place in Galilee. It anchored so many of the memories that the disciples would link to Christ. When they would think of his ministry, they would think of Galilee. This is the place. So apparently prophets do arise from Galilee, as does the Christ. All this is true. But now here they are sitting across the fire, having breakfast with Jesus. Someone who is so much more than a mere man. 
This is the eternal Son of God become flesh, who died on the cross for the sins of his people, who has risen from the grave and now holds the keys of death and Hades in his hand, the one who is sovereign over all rule, authority, and power and dominion, and here he is eating and drinking with his disciples. They're eating and drinking with the Savior of the world over this simple meal. Because this is how Christ wanted to reveal himself to his disciples in this specific way at the Sea of Galilee. So what do we learn from our text? We learn that a prophet can arise from Galilee. Not just a prophet, the prophet. This is the prophet. And he has shown them that that he can provide for them and do so abundantly. He always has and he always will. He showed this in John 6. And one of his great signs, when from five loaves that our Lord multiplied bread to feed 5,000 men, not including the women and the children, where everybody ate to their fill, and there was so much left extra afterwards. There was 12 basketfuls of food that was gathered up. Such a lavish proportions and such lavish provision. It proves that the power and the authority that clothes Jesus, it, it shows who he is for anybody who is willing to see And the people even said on that occasion, this is the prophet who has come into the world. That's who Jesus is. And it's evident from what he has done. We have foreshadowings of this when Israel's in the wilderness and the children of Israel are complaining to Moses and they say, give us meat. We want meat. And so Moses complains to the Lord in Numbers 11 and he says this, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Listen to this. Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And what's the Lord's response? Is my hand short? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And here we have this fulfilled and lived out in this, in this small, innocent little episode that comes at the end of the gospel where all the fish of the sea answer the voice of Jesus as do all those that he will gather from the nations into his family. He is more than sufficient to do this. The disciples went fishing to provide for themselves, but what Christ shows them again is that without Christ they can do nothing, but with Christ they can do all things. Without Christ, whether they're gathering fish or fishing for men, They will not succeed, but with Christ, he can provide. He can provide them with food or for this great task of the Great Commission. He can provide for them with the power of his spirit that will fall upon them at Pentecost in order that they can gather the nations to Christ. And to think of it, that from these 12 men, these 12 simple men, what do we have today? Almost 2 billion people who confess the name of Christ around the world. The highest percentage of Christians that the planet has ever seen. We're not saying all of them are faithful, but two billion is a considerable number when you start with just 12. And all that is due to the power of Christ, that he is more than sufficient, whether it's gathering fish at a small sea or gathering the nations to himself. And to me, that is the beauty and the wonder of this moment. And what a wonderful moment it is. 
We used to play a game with our children in the car sometimes. We'd say, jump into a movie. If you could jump into any movie, where would you jump? You could be any character in any movie, jump into that moment. What is it? And go around the family and hear our five children tell us these things. You could do the same thing with the Bible. If you could jump into one moment of history in the Bible, where would you go? And some people would truly say creation. I would love to have been there at the creation of the world. That would have been something to see that. I would like to have been there when the Red Sea was parted and see the children of Israel walk through on dry ground. Somebody might say, I'd like to have been there at the flood. I think you should reconsider that answer personally. (laughs) Somebody could say, I would like to have been at the cross or at the resurrection. If I could pick one moment in all scripture, it would be this one. Just to sit there eating a meal with the Savior. Not needing to say a word. Because it's obvious of who he is. And what he has done. Just eating and drinking with Christ. Well, if you share that wish, our wish is true this morning. What is the Lord's Supper? You and I get to eat and drink with the Lord who is present by his Holy Spirit. Think of the disciples sitting there eating with Jesus and nobody saying a word. They don't need to because they know who he is and they know what he has done. It's one of those quiet moments that you get after many years of marriage where you're just sitting there comfortable with each other. You don't have to say anything to fill the time. You're just comfortable and secure in each other's Love and and inter-knowledge. And that's what you have here. When you're just at rest, you're not talking because you're so comfortable. And the Lord's Supper is given to us for many reasons, I'm sure. But among them is is that the Lord's Supper, what we have here are the symbols of, of who Jesus is. God in the flesh. And what he has done. And it's a reminder to us that nobody comes to the table and begins to talk or begins to boast of all the reasons why I deserve to be at the table or what I have done for Christ or who I am and why I have a right to this table. It's a table where you and I, we don't talk. We just listen. And we pray. And we praise him because he has done what we could not do for ourselves. That he bore an unspeakable burden that you and I could not bear. And he conquered an enemy that you and I could not vanquish. And he won a victory that you and I could not obtain. The Lord's Supper is all about what Christ is and what he has done. And we eat and we drink these signs of grace that are multiplied to us where we receive this abundance of steadfast love and faithfulness as we sit here in the quietness of our faith at rest. And our faith finds peace, finally finds peace in Jesus Christ the Galilean. Because this is our prophet This is the one who spoke to us by his word and spirit and opened our hearts to receive the good news of the gospel. This is our great high priest, this one who interceded for us at Calvary in that substitutionary death and who intercedes for us still at the right hand of God. This is our our great king, the one who has conquered our sin and our death. And he has done so through all the perfections of his divine character and power and he has provided for us this great salvation and gathered us into the net of salvation. This is our Savior, 
who can and who has and who will always provide for all of our needs, body and soul. And it's good in this moment to be content and simply sit here in this moment with him quietly and comfortably in this familiar place where you have sat with him so many times before. We don't need to say a word. Just to be comforted and to rest in what Christ has done for us. And of course, we do this looking ahead to another gathering. When you and I will eat and drink with the Lord at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Who says to us, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. With me. And brothers and sisters, there will be nothing anticlimactic about that. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, how we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the way in which you've condescended to us in the Gospels, even in the simple way in which you chose to reveal yourself to the disciples, and the ways in which you've revealed yourself to us. There are many people in this room who have amazing stories of how you met with them and opened their eyes, not just to see their sin, but to see the Savior. And we thank you for it. But we rejoice most of all in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and this powerful resurrection from the dead and this one who has purchased our justification for us and who walks with us by his spirit and comforts us with his presence, even as you do now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.